Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and happy Friday, everybody. I'm Holly Fry. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. We hope you've had a delightful week. Uh, this week, we talked about Isabella Lucy Bird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have to laugh just because she is really, really tricky to unpack. There are a few things that I wanted to mention. One is, if you read that Anna Stoddart biography of her, there really is an awful lot of fun writing about weird little vignettes in Isabella's life that never make any of the major, like, you know, if you read an article about her in a a travel journal or a scientific journal, etc., But, like, there are gems, like, apparently she allegedly thwarted an assassination attempt at one point. What? Because she got into a cab, and apparently at this point uh, in, I believe she was in London at the time, it was common for people to, like, throw kind of a packet of papers that were advertisements bundled together into cab windows as people were getting in them. Um, And she realized that there was already one on the seat, but in fact it turned out to be papers about this assassination attempt, which she then brought to the authorities and allegedly had her, um, her, the place where she was staying guarded that night because there was worry that she was in danger for having been part of the, there are a lot of stories like that that are completely unsubstantiated, uh, that make me wonder if Isabella Lucy Bird wasn't just a really good storyteller with her friends. (laughs) because they, things like that come up over and over. The other thing that I wanted to mention, we continued to call her by Miss Bird throughout, even though she did get married and became technically Mrs. Bishop uh, in her uh, late 40s. This is something that also kind of was the case with her work. Um, she continued to be known by Bird because that was her established professional name as a writer. Her name often would appear as... Isabella Bird with, in parentheses, Mrs. Bishop or Mrs. J.L. Bishop next to it, um, which is just an interesting thing. But it seems like Mrs. Bishop feels like a weird name to call her to me. Yeah. (laughs) And the other thing I wanted to mention, we talked about it a little bit in the episode, that these letters that she would write back to Henny were dense, like... There, I ran across a photo of one of the originals, and I was just like, holy crap, how could anybody ever read this? <laughs> because it is like, not only is it, um, she has a handwriting that is not especially easy to read, mm-hmm. but like, there's no spaces between the lines. It's like the way she's writing in cursive, the line underneath the one before it is crossing over the one above it just a little bit. And it's like that throughout the entire letter. Like, it's very cramped. And she wrote long letters. There is a story of one letter that she wrote to a particularly um, important person in a leadership position that was allegedly 116 pages or something. My goodness. And I think nobody read that letter. (laughs) (laughs) Like, can you imagine writing? I don't remember if that was to John Murray or if that was to, like, a, a leader of a foreign country, but... I just can't imagine thinking anybody would want to hear 116 pages of my writing in a letter. (laughs) No, that's a lot of pages. Yeah. Yeah, she's fascinating. And it's tricky, right? 
wanted to be very careful about how we talked about her various medical issues and how she portrayed them. And hopefully we didn't, uh, you know, do anything clunky or missteppy there. It's very, it's very difficult because you want to be sensitive to like the, the modern audience and, and how much more we know about how these things work. But also you're working with someone who talked about all of these things in a, a very old school way that is not as enlightened. Yeah. Well, and then so often when we're talking about figures from the past who are described as like in quotation marks, poor health, like sometimes it's like, it's so unclear what was actually going on. And, you know, it's, it's the folks that I know today who are, who are chronically ill will describe themselves as chronically ill and will like name their specific illness if they know like if there's been an actual diagnosis, because sometimes those are also very difficult to get a diagnosis for. But like sometimes we're looking at folks in the past and it's like, well, they were they were tired a lot. <laughs> they they seemed not well. And it's like, well, that's all, we don't really have anything to go on. Um, yeah. There, there's all kinds of explanations for that that range along a spectrum that includes like a chronic illness that nobody had a name or diagnosis for at the time, but also includes things like you're living in a repressive society where you were not allowed to have a job or be educated. Right. Uh, yeah, I read one um, brief piece that brought up the question. This is very speculative, so please know I'm not saying this is the case, but it, it was an interesting thing to think about that brought up the point that her illnesses started to manifest after Henrietta was born Mm. and wondering if there wasn't, at least in childhood, an element of feeling that she had lost her attention base in her parents because now they had two kids to split it between and that she was in some ways using various complaints as a way to put focus back on her, Mm -hmm. Uh, which kids do. I mean, that's not an uncommon thing to happen uh, in in families when the dynamic shifts in that way. Uh, but we can't, again, it's the same problem. We can't ever really know because there's no doctor to go back to. And in fact, even any records to go back to and be like, was this true? Did she have actual symptoms that you recorded and noted? Did you? We don't know. Right. We don't know. Most of what we know about Isabella Lucy Bird is what Isabella Lucy Bird told us. <laughs> yeah, what she wanted us to know. Right. One of the episodes we did this week was about Wulianda and the uh, Manchurian pneumonic plague epidemic that started in 1910. Super fun topic. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When the pandemic first started, I I consciously avoided uh, doing episodes that were, like, specifically about a terrible disease outbreak just because it felt like everyone was under so much stress about it that I was like, there's stuff we can do that's relevant that does not feel like it is also going to be traumatizing for no reason. (laughs) Um, And now it is however many months later. We're recording this on July 21st. And uh, I kept coming back to this, this particular topic um, both because his life and work are so interesting and so important to the overall idea of of public health in China, and also because I kept hearing just the little piece of the story in other podcasts that were um, about masks in general. 
one of the things that really came across to me as I was researching this is how similar this 1910 epidemic uh, is with what is happening right now in terms of people having to figure out what was happening and what would work and what wouldn't as they were going. Because it was like, it started out with everybody being like, all right, plague. Plague is spread by fleas and rats. We got this. We know how this goes. <laughs> uh, it was not being spread by fleas and rats. It was being spread by coughing. Um, and then a lot of the response that was happening among people, like the people who were being quarantined and the people who were being told, no, you cannot go visit your family in another town, um, like not understanding why and not wanting to do it. One of the later ep- epidemics that uh, that Wu was involved in helping to control, which we did not get into at all, um, there were incidents of like plague enforcement people being kidnapped and riots over quarantines and um, they distributed something like 60,000 masks to people or distributed masks to 60,000 people. I'm not actually sure which way that went. But a lot of the same, like, people pushing back against being given public health directives that were going to uh, upend their everyday lives. Yeah. I, um, I will tell you the thing that I chuckled about perhaps most in this episode, which has very little to do with the actual epidemic we discussed. I suddenly was thinking how it might be kind of lovely to have a plague doctor's mask filled with garlic. (laughs) (laughs) I do love garlic. Me too. There's nothing better than roasting garlic and smelling it all over the house. Yeah. For me. Um, Yeah. I guess if you don't like garlic, that would feel different. One of the things about those plague doctor outfits um, that I kind of went down a rabbit hole on that and I was not able to get a satisfactory solution because there's so much writing about it that's meant for a popular audience that's like kind of a surface level read on stuff. Um, number one, sometimes people associate those plague doctor masks with the Black Death, but really that that was much later, uh, the the pointy beaked plague doctor masks. And the other thing is a lot of the visual references to those masks were meant to be satiric. Like, this was a satirical drawing. (laughs) So it's like, what, okay, what did they actually look like if this thing was satire? And I think a lot of times some of those illustrations that were meant to be satire are used as illustrations on articles about the Plague Doctor costume without acknowledging it, which sometimes makes me wonder, did the writer of this article in, like, a popular website know that that was supposed to be satire? And I don't know the answer. Um, I'm looking for extant examples. There is one that looks almost like a hybrid um, of the early, early, early diving apparatus, but yeah. like a leather full head gear with the the sort of peplum flange on the bottom that covers the shoulders. And it looks more like a pointy beak, like you would see like a straight-ahead pointy beak. And it it does have a beak. Mm-hmm. Well, and you would need some kind of protuberance if you're going to stick a bunch of garlic up in there. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it seems like there were some a little like that, but the ones we usually see are more extreme examples. Yeah. This is from... One is in the Berlin Museum. Uh-huh. 
And one is in the I'm go I'm reading this off of a a, a historian's blog, so I'm not like ba- verifying any of this in real time. Um, and one is in the Ingolstadt Museum, and they both look pretty much like that. Like they have, uh, interestingly enough, and this could be the ravages of time. Instead of the beak pointing down, it it uh, tapers and moves slightly up at the end. Oh, funny! But again, that could be just how it shifted in shape over time. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things that I saw a lot in popular writing about this topic was people describing Wu's mask as the precursor to the N95. And I'm like, that only makes sense if what you are saying is that it was used to try to prevent the spread of illness. Right. That's a big leap in between those two. Yeah, because the whole thing about the N95 is like, it is not a woven cotton material. That's a whole other story. Uh, That is covered in some of those um, other episodes uh, that I mentioned in the listener mail segment of our show on this topic. Uh, If you'd like to send us an email, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. And you can also find us on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts and wherever else you like to get podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.